welcome to episode four. Real quick update before we get into the episode. We are in the process of updating our podcast name. We are going to be changing to Podcast of a Thousand Corpses. Now, over the course of the next one to two episodes, you may still hear us referring to the old name. So after that, it should be adjusted. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Twisted. Uh, this week should be a nice reprieve from last week, which was basically controlled chaos, if anything at all. And we have some structure this time, because we actually have a case we're going to go over rather than bullshitting for what you may think was closer to half hour, but in reality was a little more. Uh, my name's Nathan. I'm Marshall. I'm Sydney. And today we're going to tackle something closer to us. Hey, not necessarily because we're lazy, like I said last time. We're totally lazy, like I said last time. But because it's actually pretty interesting and fairly gruesome, so a uh, warning for anybody that doesn't deal well with something that is pretty bad. Maybe keep kids away on this one. Uh, what we'll be talking about today is the Hi-Fi Murders in Ogden, Utah, I believe? That's right. Yes. So today... Just like Nathan said, we're going to talk about the Hi-Fi murders, which happened in Ogden, Utah. It took place on April 22, 1974. So, Hi-Fi was a home audio store. And two people named Sherry Ansley and Stanley Walker were working. They were working their part-time shift when a customer named Byron Nasbitt walked into the store and just asked if he could park his car in the parking lot while they ran some errands around. And Stanley was like, yeah, sure, that's fine. So Brian left, and Sherry and Stanley were left in the store. And the store was relatively dead for the most part. You know how working retail is. Customers come and go, and it was almost closing time for the store. Until two vans drove up with six men inside it. Only three men ended up walking inside, and that's when things took a turn for the worst. Dale, Pierre... And William Andrews walked into the shop with handguns, demanding cash because they were there to rob the store at first. Then it switched. Pierre and Andrews walked up, ended up taking two workers hostage. So they took Stanley and Sherry and tied them up and tossed them into the basement. That's when the remaining men came into the store and started robbing it. To kind of put into perspective for you guys, so the two that were working in the store, Stanley Walker and Michelle Ansley, they were really young. Like, again, this is a retail job. Yeah, Ansley was 18 and Stanley was 20. Exactly. So for those of you, which I'm sure are most of you who've worked a retail job, had some rando dude be like, can I park my van or do this sort of thing? Like, what's she gonna say? You're not the boss. Like, sure, yeah. But this is such a 70s thing, too. Like, now we just kind of, if we want to go somewhere else, we park in front of whatever store we feel like and walk around and do whatever we don't. Like, hey, can I park here? Hope we don't get ticketed. That's the that's the main thing. Yeah, this is just, like, it, just to ask for permission is just so 70s. You know, you walk into the store and you're like, hey, is it okay if I park here and just walk around, like, the area? And they're like, yeah, sure, that's fine. We don't care. Yeah, people nowadays are so territorial now. Yeah, they're just like, no, you can't park in my parking lot. 
parking in Salt Lake, too much money. $10 an hour sometimes. It's like $7. It's like a dollar back then, wasn't it? Not even then. Like, just like this. They'd be like, yeah, sure, just park it anywhere. Remember Byron? Well, he ended up returning to the store after finishing his errands and walked inside the building to thank Stanley. He was greeted with the six men robbing the store, and he was also taken hostage and tied up in the basement with Walker and Ansley. Yeah, ultimately, I think he was actually looking for Stanley when he'd walked in and just totally wasn't expecting all these guys to just, like, rush him and take him downstairs where they were keeping Stanley and Michelle. Yeah, and I was totally expecting the one dude who asked permission to be the guy that did it. Like, I was expecting it to just be like, oh, and he came back and he was part of it. Nah, poor guy just walked into the wrong fucking place. Can you just imagine just walking in and you see guys with guns and probably ski masks just robbing the store and you're like, oh shit, what did I get myself into? Yeah, yeah, I can imagine exactly what that's like. And you try to run, but then you're tied up and thrown into the basement. No, that's more your area. That's not. No. So, funny, uh, I don't know if it's the actual Hi-Fi store. Uh, I... It might be. I don't think it was ever torn down. I drive by Hi-Fi Audio every single day for work. Is it in the old Ogden district, or is it in the new part? Uh, so I drive by one that I think is called Hi-Fi up uh, in the newer Ogden part, but then there's one down in the older part that I drive by that I know is called Hi-Fi. Yeah, so looking at the store, um, to kind of paint you guys a word picture, it honestly... Not to throw a Doctor Who joke in, in this, but the store looks really small, but looking at it online, it actually looks like a pretty big place. Uh, it kind of gives like a pretty good like warehouse type feel. What if I told you I never saw any Doctor Who episodes? I wouldn't be that disappointed. It's the same place. If you look at the newspaper, like I've driven by this place every single day for the past like three and a half years. If you look at the newspaper clipping of them pulling the bodies out, you can kind of see, like, the blurry storefront of the door. That's the same building. 100%. Yeah. So, store's still here today. Roy, Utah. Approximately 45 minutes later, when both the store workers were supposed to return home, Stanley's father, Oren Walker, became worried and went to the store himself, along with Byron's mother. Sadly, they were both met with the same robbers and soon tossed into the basement. With five people now being held hostage, Pierre told Andrews to go back to the van to grab something. Andrews came back shortly after with a brown paper bag and gave it to Pierre. So, this is where I kind of break away from the idea that this was ever supposed to just be a robbery. Because they obviously had at least some of this planned. And I, it wasn't supposed to be this many people, obviously. Because people just kept walking in. It's not that you ever goes the way you want. But I really don't think this was ever meant to just be a robbery. And before we get into this, this is the part that I referred to earlier. That if you're squeamish, might have a problem. They should have just locked, like, they should have just locked the front door. Well, you know, with there being so many people involved with this, I'm sure, I don't think everybody who was involved with this was all like, thinking, we're going to go in, this is going to be more than a robbery. I'm sure that at least one person wouldn't have expected the way that it had gone down. And one person in particular, I'm not going to say who yet, definitely seemed like they took the initiative a lot on this sort of case. So. Well, it's, it's a fact that at least one of the men had said prior to doing this that he was going to rob the store and kill anybody that got in his way. 
And usually if someone makes a statement, anybody that gets in my way, they're looking for someone to be in their way to kill. So just prior to Pierre sending Andrews back to the van to grab the brown bag, uh, the six men who had been robbing the store, three of them actually left. And we found that it was six men according to witness reports. And those same reports said that three men left the store. So, based on what we read, what happened was they came to rob the store, the six men. Three of them left, got in the van, got out. They were only there to steal stuff. Another man was sent out of the store to sit in the van. That ended up being their getaway driver. While Dale, Pierre, and Williams stayed in the store with the hostages. And what followed after that is going to ruin your day. Dale took out a cup of blue liquid and ordered Orin to pass around the cup for the other people to drink. Orin refused, and he was bound, gagged, and left face down on the basement floor. Dale and William decided to take it upon themselves to make the other people drink the Drano. So the blue liquid in the brown bag was Drano. So they set the people up in the sitting, in sitting positions and basically forced them to drink telling them it was vodka laced with sleeping pills. I don't know what sleeping pills are blue, but that doesn't make any sense. Rather, it was liquid Drano that immediately caused blisters on the victim's lips and began burning their tongues and throats and peeled away the flesh around their mouths. Ashley didn't drink that much. According to Orin, Dale and William tried using duct tape on the hostage's mouth to hold the cleaner in, but due to the blistering around their mouths and their lips bleeding, it didn't work. Because when tape gets wet, it doesn't stick. Science 101. It was uh, actually closer to uh, the skin was peeling off. They got the duct tape to stick for a moment, and then the layer of skin that it was attached to would fall off their face. Orin didn't drink any of the cleaner because he managed to let it pour or out of his mouth. He also mimicked the screams and, the, and convulsions to basically um, manipulate Dale and Williams that he drank it. Dale grew impatient and mad because it was taking too long for the Drano to kill the hostages. So instead he shot both Carol, which was Byron's mom, and he shot Byron in the back of their heads. Instantly killing one, but the other survived. Carol died, but Byron lived. Dale also shot Stanley. He died, and he also tried to shoot Orin, but he missed twice. We are going to do a third listener discretion, just because this part is going to get kind of graphic. So, Dale then took Michelle to a far corner of the basement at gunpoint, forced her to remove her clothes, and then began to repeatedly rape her. This took 30 minutes because he told Williams to clear out. When he was done, he allowed her to use the bathroom while he watched, then dragged her, still naked, back to the other hostages, threw her on her face, and then fatally shot her in the back of the head. According to Oren's testimony, her last words were, I'm too young to die. William and Dale noted that Oren was still alive, so Dale 
basically straddled him, wrapped wire around his throat, and tried to strangle him. When this failed, Dale and William inserted a ballpoint pen into Oren's ear, and Dale stomped on it until it punctured his eardrum, broke, and exited the side of his throat. Dale and William then went upstairs, finished loading, loading the equipment into their van, and left. So Oren lived through that. Oren lived through uh, quite a bit there. He was able to not drink any of the cleaner. He, they attempted to strangle him with a wire. Also didn't work. And then they shoved a ballpoint pen into his ear and stomped on it so hard that it came out the side of his neck. And he lived. I mean, out of all the stuff that happened to him, just brutally handling him and trying to shove a pen in his ear, kicking it through his head, the fact that he lived through that is I mean, insane. The fact that anybody lived through this, because Drano is... Uh, it, it Drano. Drano is Drano. It's meant to eat away things. So when they drank it, it was tearing their throat apart. Tearing their mouths apart. It was so bad that the skin around their mouths was falling off so they couldn't get duct tape to stick. Then they shot two of them. One of them survived that. But the whole thing is just, like, outlandishly brutal. Ugh. It's just the whole... Okay, so when I first read the part where he had a pen basically shoved into his ear, I got, like, body shivers because it's just like... Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, watching you read that was actually kind of funny. <laughs> yeah, it's... Un- honestly, it's very unsettling to think or even it talk about. It is a bit, and it was interesting to see that you, like, tried to add a small choke in there while you read it. Uh, it's just because I have issues with my ears and just anything with anyone else's ears just makes me really uncomfortable. Alright, so at this point, it's been a couple of hours. Oren's wife, who actually had been home around this time, they were basically waiting to eat dinner. And because William hadn't been home and Oren had left, it was basically around 10 o'clock at this point that she still had been waiting for them to come home and hadn't heard from them at all. So she decided to take the initiative to go back to the shop herself to look for them. When she went to the shop herself, uh, she had gone with Stanley's brother, and when they had reached the back door of the shop, they could actually hear her husband calling them from the basement to call the police and an ambulance. By the time that the ambulance arrived, both her sons, Stanley and Michelle Ansley, were found dead. Byron and Kara were both rushed to the hospital in critical condition, but unfortunately, by the time the ambulance arrived to the hospital, Carol Naisbitt was announced dead at her time of arrival at St. Benedict's Hospital in Ogden. Byron was not expected to survive either, suffering serious and permanent brain damage. He ended up being hospitalized for nearly 226 days during the time that he had stayed at the hospital. Now, despite having swallowed none of the Drano, Oren, who was Stanley's father, had injuries and burns surrounding his mouth caused by the Drano, and had actually suffered major injuries to his ears. I'm going to go with, that's an obvious one, when you have a ballpoint pen stomped into your ear. Yeah, I don't feel like, I mean, it's a pretty obvious thing to have. I'd be shocked if he was fine. Wait, so it went in his ear, and then it went down and came out through his throat? My guess is it caught the the part of the skull that connects to the cartilage Mm -hmm. on your ear. And just went straight down. Oh, yeah. So it went in and then it did like a down motion. Yes. And it, it just, and like, just came out the side of his throat. Oh my god. 
Nearly about a 40 degree angle, God. maybe. It, the pen broke, so it just broke and came out of storage. He's lucky it did, though, because had it gone directly into his ear canal, through the eardrum, and into the brain, he's dead. So he probably also had some ink in his head, too, right? No, probably No? I imagine they cleaned the wound very well. Yeah, luckily no ink poisoning, but bad brain damage. Yeah, one seems sure. worse than the other. Well, I mean, you would think that when the pen broke, it would just release all the ink inside, but... I, it depends I on know. if there was any ink in the pen. We don't actually know. Who knows? Hours after news of the crime broke... An anonymous Air Force employee called the Ogden police and told him that Williams had confided in him months earlier, saying he was going to rob the store and kill people that got in his way. Also, teens who were dumpster diving near the Hill Air Force Base found the victims' wallets and purses. They contacted the police because they recognized the pictures of the people who were attacked. So, two of the military service members that were part of the Air Force, they actually recognized who they were based on the reports of not only, I think, the wallets that they found, but also the photos that were posted of them. They actually recognized them and said exactly where they lived, and that's how they were able to take them into custody. The detective who responded to the scene, believing the killers might be in a crowd, put on a show for the gathered airmen. Speaking dramatically, he waved each piece of evidence in the air with tongs as he removed it from the dumpster. Later, he noted that the most of the service personnel who gathered around the dumpster stood still and watched in relative silence, with the exception of two men, later identified as Dale and Williams, who paced around the crowd, speaking loudly and making frantic gestures with their hands. You're seriously going to be like, everybody else is pretty quiet and they're pulling evidence out of the trash and you're like, oh, my god! I, I want to know if they were like, if they seemed agitated, like, oh shit, they found something, or if it was like a serious overacting Bill Shatner bit. They're just, they're just like, oh my god, oh my god, they found it! Well, really, the odds of finding that, so, just in, in hindsight, I was helping my neighbor try to find their dog, literally yesterday, pretty much. We searched for two hours, and sadly, isn't found yet. But the fact that they went into this dumpster, and who knows how much shit was in this dumpster at the time that they were searching, but the odds of them finding the stuff there, I would at least be a little pleased with myself actually finding their wallet and information there. That's a steal of a find. So, I went dumpster diving once when I was in middle school with my old friend at her grandma's apartment, I think. And the only thing I found in the dumpster was porn DVDs. So I would like to know how he pinpoint the evidence from the dumpster with the tongs. Kids that were dumpster diving found the wallets of the victims, which pretty easy to pick out as a piece of evidence. Right, so they, they, did they just leave the evidence in there and then wait for the detective to take it out? Yeah, they found the shit in the dumpster and they called the cops. Okay. And you know, I... You never really did stupid shit as a kid, but, like, if you find something you have to call the police about, the first thing you do is toss it right back where you found it in hopes that they don't know you ever touched it. Because you don't want to get in trouble. And for some kind of, like, perspective on them finding this stuff, Hill Air Force Base is about six and a half, seven miles away from 
Wi-Fi on here. So, that means seven miles away, kids happen to be playing in a dumpster at Hill Air Force Base, would happen to have heard about it, and called the police. And this was, like, the next day, right? Or was it the same day? It almost certainly wasn't the same day. So, the next day... They... So, they probably would have been caught anyway, because they got ratted out by the dude who said that Dale had told him that they were going to rob the place and kill whoever got in the way. But just finding the stuff in the dumpster is kind of what got him. One of the things they also found, so one of the documents is actually in the trash. There was also, there was a receipt for a, basically a storage receipt. And when they did the research to find out where the storage unit was, that's actually how they were able to find a lot of the things that they had stolen. Yeah, if you're going to kill people, don't steal shit. You want as little things connecting you to that crime scene as physically possible. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff yeah, to I hold mean, around. It's going to look either mighty Either rob suspicious. the place or kill the people. And obviously they were super into killing people because it was done pretty fucking brutally. So just leave the shit there. Just run away. Burn the wallets. I mean, don't tell Well, I read in an article saying that the idea, or like where they got the idea from of Drano, killing people instantly was from a movie they like to watch all the time. I forgot the name of the movie, but they thought that Drano would kill people instantly, so they were like, oh, we'll just use Drano. Turns out it takes probably, an, what is it? Who knows how long it takes for Drano to kill you. Yeah, don't believe the shit you watch in movies, people. Is it 48 hours? I don't think I want to know that information. Shortly after the men were taken into custody and tried for first-degree murder and robbery, on August 28, 1987, the case was moved from Ogden to Farmington, though they still fall under the same judicial district. Judicial? Seriously, history buff? <laughs> judicial? I drew... Judicial. Jesus Christ! Ju yeah, you can do it. Judicial. Judicial. No, that's worse. Ju judicial district. <laughs> Let me just. I got this for you. She's psyching herself up. She's doing her vocal exercises. <laughs> An hour into the podcast, she's doing her vocal exercises. Judicial. Shortly after the three men were taken into custody and tried for a first-degree murder and robbery, on August 28, 1987, the case was moved from Ogden to Farmington, though they still fell under the same judicial district. Sadly, Byron developed amnesia, so he was not able to testify against Dale and Williams. But Oren was able to testify. The original sentencing was either death by hanging or by firing squad. The attorneys for Dale and William were able to appeal the verdict because the three suspects were African American. They were able to involve the NAACP, which is the National Advancement of Colored People. Now, they are actually an organization that helps avoid racial discrimination against suspects who are in trial. They wanted to help to make sure that they weren't just getting the death penalty based their race. Now, they also, what they had to do for this particular trial, they actually had to interview everyone who was going to be in the jury to make sure that there wasn't going to be any racial discrimination against what their verdict was going to be. So they basically wanted like a equal trial, right? Like a fair equal trial. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, people of Utah are just so great. 
and don't racially discriminate that at all. That can be said about any state at this point. Yeah, like true. look in the look at the news now; it's chaotic. Yeah, especially right now. Keith Roberts, who was actually the driver for the robbery, he was only convicted of robbery and was actually sent to prison. So he didn't get the full degree of he didn't get as bad as a verdict as the other two did during the trial. His was actually pretty he quick. He was somehow able to convince them that he didn't know what was going on. He basically got the, um, he got a safe sentence, basically. He just was only, all they could tie him to specifically was the robbery, because he was able to convince very thoroughly that he was not involved in any of the murders, and that he didn't actually know what had happened. Right. And um, during the time he was in prison, he actually was able to get parole later in 1987. So he was never sentenced to the death penalty. He stayed quite a bit of time in prison and was able to get now, parole. Now, Dale and William, though, they were found guilty on accounts of robbery and murder of the first degree. Shocking, right? Totally not. Yeah. Because, of course, this whole case of everything, the evidence that they found and the stories and everything that had happened, the hearing was very quick. Dale and William were found guilty on account of robbery and murder in the first degree. The hearing did only last for a day on November 11th of 1974. When the verdict was read that Dale, Pierre, and William Andrews would face the death penalty, they were silent, and Dale Pierre was put to death by lethal injection on August 28th of 1987, being the first in Utah to be put to death by lethal injection, the same year that Keith Robert was paroled. Now, William had the chance to appeal again after Dale was put to death during his trial statement. Now, after, William did have the chance to appeal again after Dale was put to death. During his trial, statements were made that despite him sounding warm-hearted and sorry for what had happened, he almost seemed like he was coached on what to say during his trial, so they can tell it just seemed disingenuous. So they just, ultimately, they didn't believe it. He had faced the same consequence, and by July 30th of 1992, William Andrews was executed by a lethal injection. They were convicted in 74. One was killed in 87. The other was killed in 92. Why the huge time disparity? Yeah, it's... I imagine trial processes usually take a long time. I mean, they time. do. It takes a long time to go from death row to the executioner's chair. It's still weird that there was a five-year disparity. Why would he be able to appeal after Dale was dead? Because Dale was the leader, I guess, and did more? They, they probably thought Dale was more dangerous than William, because they looked at Dale as a leader and William as, like, the accomplice that just helped, or at least... He tried to portray that. Yeah, and with this, like, based off of when William had his trials, the whole statements of him seeming warm-hearted and nice and just almost didn't seem like he deserved the death penalty, I think that's why they were like, okay, we'll give you the chance to do a a new trial. I think it's more along the line of what Sidney said, because Dale was also the one that raped the girl. He was pretty obviously in charge. He sent William out of the room to rape the girl. Well, and Dale probably didn't show any remorse, as in William at least tried to show some remorse. I'm sure all of them attempted remorse at their initial trial, because that's what you do. Uh, you can't, well, I don't know, it's just like, you can't murder or rape or rob a store and then be like, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. It's That wasn't on my list of 
things to do. Well, no, it's... I'm sorry, I won't do it again. In his case, it's a solid defense. If he can convince them that Dale was in charge of everything, he was acting not necessarily under duress, but acting by the wishes of Dale because he didn't want to be killed with everybody else, that's a solid defense. That's the defense I'd go with. He was in charge, he was doing everything, I was just there. There's nothing I could do, I didn't want to die. Yeah, anyone who's going to be convicted of the death penalty, I'm sure will do anything and everything to avoid that. Yeah, they'll sail each other down the river. I mean, though there are exceptions to that, like in the West Memphis 3, where they were all innocent, but none of them tried to sell the other out to get released from prison early, so one of them would die. So there are exceptions to people rolling over on each other for no fucking reason, or I guess to avoid the death penalty. But in this case, yeah, I think it's a, it was his defense. Alright, so that's uh, about the end of it. The Hi-Fi Murders Ogden, Utah. Incredibly brutal. Don't make a whole hell of a lot of sense when you think about it, because that definitely wasn't a robbery. Anyway, uh, I'd like to thank you for sticking around. And feel free to follow our Instagram, which is Twisted True Crime Podcast. Send us a message, or write a comment, or you can rate us five stars or one star on Apple Podcasts, because we're on that now. Or feel free to listen to wherever you get your podcasts. That's what therapy's for.